morning. If you will remain standing for the reading of God's Word, if you will remain standing. Uh, so we are uh, kicking off a new series today uh, in Revelation. Uh, super excited for it. Um, so every week uh, at the beginning, we read the scripture that we're going to cover for that day. Uh, and usually I encourage you to have a Bible open in front of you so that you can see it. Uh, this series is a little bit unique uh, in that, as you'll see, so much about Revelation is about seeing. Uh, and so what, what I want you to do is every time that we do our scripture reading here at the beginning, I would ask, ask actually that you just close your eyes. Uh, close your eyes and imagine. Don't worry. You're in a safe environment. <laughs> no one's going to attack you. <laughs> you will be okay. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read our scripture for today, which comes from Revelation 1, starting in verse 1. If you want to close your eyes and imagine what this says. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you that we have recorded in this book the experience that you gave to the Apostle John to see who Jesus Christ is. And God, I, I pray that as we begin this new series looking through this complex, complicated book, I just pray for the simple grace of being able to see Jesus Christ with more clarity. That every bit of imagery that is used in this book, every, every shocking and striking thing would ultimately lead us back to who Jesus Christ is. And our hearts would be all the more devoted to him, Father. And so, Lord, would you, would you help us to go further up and further in into your presence and into who Jesus Christ is by the power of your spirit. And as we begin this series today, laying out some important principles to be able to read this book properly, God, I just pray that you would, that you would give grace of understanding. I myself feel so intimidated and yet excited by the task. And so, Father, would you unite your power with my weak words, and would you give us clarity on how to approach this wonderful book? In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Well, uh, like I said, we are kicking off a new series today uh, on the book of Revelation, and we are going to go through the entire book. Uh, Sometimes we just do little sections of a book and then kind of pick it up at a later time. Uh, Revelation isn't really a book that you can do sections at a time. And so we're going to go through the entire book. Uh, It's currently slotted at 18 weeks. Uh, Just so you know, friends, it might take longer. So everybody in for it? Yeah? Cool. All right. Well, I'm excited for it. And today is going to be a little bit different than normal. Uh, normal, normally, I, I, I want to preach a sermon at you. I want to show you things in the scripture that will help you to trust Jesus more, love Jesus more, follow Jesus more faithfully. And I want to do that today, uh, but today is going to be a little bit more teaching heavy. And so not kind of a, kind of a mix between a lecture and a sermon. Uh, and so we, uh, we need to approach this book carefully because it's been so misinterpreted. It is without a doubt the most misunderstood and the most misinterpreted book in the Bible. And misinterpreting the Bible is always unfortunate and unhelpful, but especially when it comes to this last book of the Bible. Whether you know it or not, what we have in front of us as we go through this book is one of the most beautiful, complex, and compelling letters I believe to have ever been written. There really are great depths here. And so if we don't understand what's going on out from the outset, we're going to focus our thoughts onto the text and really uh, use the text however we want to. That's been done a lot with this book. Uh, and we won't be able to walk away with what God actually wants us to see. And so for today, today is going to be very teaching heavy. And so if you have a journal, if you have a notebook, I would encourage you to get it out and start going. Okay. So what we're going to do, and this number is going to shock you, but it's okay. We're going to go through 10 principles that we need to have in place in order to understand the book of Revelation. 10 principles. Now, I know 10 principles, a 10-point sermon does not sound quick, but I promise you it will go a lot quicker than you think. Uh, and in fact, today might even be shorter than normal. So let's, uh, let's get it in uh, here for, on these 10 principles. Before we do that, let me, let me give a one, one more quick caveat. Uh, Unless you have the letters PhD behind your name, going about the book of Revelation by yourself is a very dangerous task. And so I just want to let you know uh, that I I make no claim to originality as we go through this series. Uh, I'm using all kinds of commentaries and books, and specifically today, there's a pastor up in Vancouver named Daryl Johnson who wrote a book that is fantastic on the book of Revelation, and uh, these 10 principles I learned from him. So... I feel like I'm smart, but I'm not that smart. And so it's going to be very, very heavily reliant on those books. So cool. All right, let's go. Principle number one, honor the genres. So every book of the Bible is written in a specific literary genre, which holds clues on how we actually understand it, how we are to interpret what the writer actually meant and what God is trying to tell us throughout the book. And so anytime we approach the Bible, we need to first ask the question, what literary genre is this being written in? Now, the book of Revelation is actually unique because there are three different genres that it shows up in. First, it is a letter. It is what's called an epistle in the New Testament, a letter. And it's actually the longest letter in the Bible. If you see there uh, in the text that we read, it's a letter that is written to the seven churches in the province of Asia. And so there are seven specific churches 
that John is concerned about here. This is important for us to see because we begin to see that all of what's going to happen in this book has a very specific pastoral emphasis. The Apostle John wrote this letter because he was concerned about the persecution that was going on with these seven churches in Asia. And so since it is a letter, one of the most important truths that we need to hold is this. And this is something for you to write down if you have your journal. If the book of Revelation is a letter to specific people at a specific time, that means this. It cannot mean to us what it did not mean to them. I'm saying that again. It cannot mean to us what it did not mean to them. So much of the reason why this book gets often misinterpreted is because we think that the, Rev- that the book of Revelation was written specifically for 2022, right? We think like, oh my gosh, this, you know, people start getting crazy with it. It's like, this is the mark of the beast, and then this is the Antichrist, as if the Apostle John was writing to Christians 2,000 years ago about, hey, by the way, look out for this thing coming in in 2022. That's, that's ridiculous, right? It cannot mean to us what it did not mean to them. And so when we see things show up in this book, we need to be very careful in how we interpret it. The, the locusts that show up in Revelation are not the Apache helicopter, okay? It's not what's happening. When John sees an eagle coming to rescue someone, it's not the wings of a 747 jet. I've seen that. I've seen that in a commentary. Oh, he sees the wings of a 747 jet coming to rescue people out of Jerusalem when it's, over, when it's taken over. What? No, he saw an eagle, okay? It cannot mean to us what it did not mean to them. John didn't write this letter in order to warn them about something that would never actually happen in their lifetime. It is a pastoral letter. It cannot mean to us what it did not mean to them. So first genre is that it's a letter. Second genre that it's written in is prophecy. Now prophecy in the Bible is unique. When we hear prophecy, we automatically think that it's something that's future telling which is sometimes true. There are many prophecies in the Bible that Jesus himself fulfilled. There is an an aspect of prophecy in which it is a telling of the future. But also, maybe even more frequently throughout the Bible, prophecy is actually meant to address the immediate moment. It's meant to address the immediate immediate moment. So prophecy in the Bible, if you look throughout the Old Testament, is used in order to garner or assist an encounter with God that will lead to repentance. So when you look at the Old Testament, what's one of the phrases that shows up all the time in the prophetic books? Thus says the Lord. And the reason why that's said so much is because it's seeking to encounter God in order that repentance can come flowing from us. And so anytime there's prophecy in the Bible, we need to think about, is this a future telling thing or is this a present moment addressing? And so much of what is in John, contrary to what we might think, is actually addressing the immediate moment. It's seeking to give these readers and us an encounter with the living God that addresses what our current moment is in order to move us toward repentance. That's the second genre. Third and final genre that this book is written in is the genre of apocalypse. 
Now, you might know this, apocalypse. Anytime that we hear that word, we think what? The end of the world, yes, catastrophe, right? There's something crazy that's going on. Whenever the, the, the first COVID lockdowns happened and there was no one in the streets, newscasters everywhere were like, oh my gosh, this is so apocalyptic. But a better word for things like that might be catastrophic, might be eerie, might be frightening. Apocalypse is not the right word for that type of situation. When we hear apocalypse, we get frightened. But the original meaning of the word apocalypse, that Greek word apocalypsis, it would actually garner in people a, a sense of excitement. Because what apocalypsis means is a peeling back of the curtain, okay? And so I could go through and open that door over there, and that would be an apocalypse. <laughs> You could take off the curtain. I could open this box over here, and as soon as I open it, apocalypse. It's just meaning to give sight to something that was previously hidden. That's what apocalypse means. It's appealing back of the curtain in order for us to see what was always there but was before hidden. So much of this book is God peeling back the curtain on reality in order for us to see what's always been there? What is there right now? What's actually going on? Where the world is actually headed? And we get to see it in a fresh way through this book. And so, Apocalypse. We need to respect and honor the genres of the book. Principle number two. Honor the title of the book. Honor the title of the book. The full title of the book is this, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Not revelations, although there are many revelations in it, but the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, in what sense is it of Jesus Christ? Is it a revelation of Jesus Christ? Is it a revelation by Jesus Christ? Is it a revelation about Jesus Christ? The answer to that would be yes, yes. There you go, there you go. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ, by Jesus Christ, about Jesus Christ. As we make our journey through this letter, you'll see that Jesus is the one driving John Ford, showing things to him. And each one of those things, though complex and strange at times, ultimately comes back to who Jesus is. We have to honor the title of the book, which means this. Any interpretation of this book that does not, in the end, find us at the feet of Jesus with more warmth, more devotion, and more faith is a misinterpretation of the book. Anything that ultimately does not bring us back to the feet of Jesus Christ is a misinterpretation of the book. It's about Jesus, which means it should bring us to Jesus. Principle number three. Everybody good? Yeah? Feeling all right? Principle number three. Old truth in a new way. Now, this might, this might feel strange to say, but there is nothing new in the book of Revelation. There is no new truth throughout this entire book. 
Everything that the book of Revelation has to say has already been said in the previous 65 books of the Bible. Everything. There's nothing new about faith. There's nothing new about discipleship. There's nothing new about the gospel. Everything has already been said, but it does say these old truths in a new way. Listen to this from Eugene Peterson in his book, Reverse Thunder. I do not read Revelation to get additional information about the life of faith in Christ. I've read it all before in law and prophet and gospel and epistle. Everything in the Revelation can be found in the previous 65 books of the Bible. The Revelation adds nothing of substance to what we already know. The truth of the gospel is already complete. There is nothing new to say on the subject, but there is a new way to say it. I read Revelation not to get more information, but to revive my imagination. The book of Revelation is not seeking to just give you some new truth that you haven't heard in the previous 65 books. What it is seeking to do is to revive your imagination about the truth that has already been told. It's going to say old truth in a new way in order to shock us awake to what's really there. Now, how does it do that? How does it say old truth in a new way? Through the use of imagery. Revelation is heavy on imagery, which actually gets us to that place of a revived imagination. Listen to this from Daryl Johnson. Imagery goes beyond the intellect and through the emotions into the imagination grabbing hold of us at the deepest recesses of our being. Imagery slowly but surely works on the intellect and emotions, changing the way we see and hear and feel reality. Imagery meets us, grabs us in our imagination, which is really important because whether you know it or not, you live so much of your life in your imagination. That you are not just a, a rational being, though you are. You are not just an emotional being, though you are, but you also have this capacity to imagine a world that could be. And so much of what you live your life in day-to-day -day life is actually lived in your imagination. This is why you know, advertisers know this. Marketing knows this. All, all of marketing is really trying to get you to imagine a life that would be if you had this. If you had this car, if you had this house, if you had these clothes, this many followers on social media, can you imagine what your life would be? How much better your life would be? Imagery grabs us. It goes into our imagination and transforms us at the deepest recesses of our being. And that, my friends, is what the book of Revelation is seeking to do. It is seeking to transform us. It is seeking to provide images that help you see how the world really is and where things are really headed. So as there is apocalypse, as that curtain is being torn away, what you're gonna see behind it are some very strange images. <laughs> but the reason for those strange images is in order to help you see the world that is. And friends, we need the images that the book of Revelation is going to give us throughout the series. 
We need them. All of our life is lived with images being broadcasted at us of what is real, what is true, what is the real good life. And we need images that will counter everything that we see. Just just like these Christians, these early Christians in the seven churches, we are bombarded with imagery about what the good life is or what power is. We are bombarded with these things. And as the book of Revelation peels back that curtain for us to see new images, we'll see that in many ways they are counter images. I'm saying the word images a lot if you can't, if you haven't noticed. There's a reason for it. It is going, present, going to present to us counter images. Listen to this from Richard Bauckham from his book, The Theology of the Book of Revelation. To appreciate the importance of this imagery, We should remember that Revelation's readers in the great cities of the province of Asia were constantly confronted with powerful images of the Roman vision of the world, civic and religious architecture, iconography, statues, rituals and festivals, even the visual wonder of cleverly engineered miracles in the temples. They all provided visual impressions of Roman imperial power and of the splendor of pagan religion. In this context, Revelation provides a set of Christian prophetic counter-images, which impresses on its readers a different view of the world. The visual power of the book affects a kind of purging of the Christian imagination, refurbishing it with alternative visions of how the world is and will be. So what Richard Bauckham is saying there that the reason why these images are so important is because they are counter images in order to purge our imagination around what is really true. We get a different view of the world. Our minds and our imaginations are refurbished with what he says, alternate visions of how the world is and will be. So imagery, very important. (laughs) Principle number four, and we'll go quicker through these. Don't worry, guys. I know you're like, whew. Principle number four, dealing with the symbols. So throughout the book, we need to understand that John, as he's experiencing this revelation, he often describes the symbols that he sees, but he rarely, if ever, describes the reality that the symbol is seeking to represent. He often, sh- he often speaks of what he sees but very rarely does he provide an interpretation of what he sees. There's a couple times, but rarely. Which tells us this, this is why this principle is important. Since this book is so symbolic and since we don't often get a interpretation of those symbols, we need to be careful and thoughtful about how we deal with those symbols, about what we read into them. We can't just come up with our own thinking we have to actually do some investigation. We can't just come up with what we think these symbols represent, but we actually have to think about, okay, what is this seeking to tell us? We have to think a little bit harder with these symbols. And so, for example, at a point, Jesus is described as having seven horns. Now, does Jesus have seven horns? No, no, the answer would be no. Come on, guys. Got a lot to do in this book. (laughs) Jesus does not have seven horns. That is a symbolic image. 
Now, what could this represent? Well, all throughout the Bible, the, the, the number seven is often referenced as, is often connected to the idea of completion, of full and whole, and horns being this idea of power, this symbol of power in the Bible. It's seeking to tell us that Jesus, though at that point when it, says, when it shows Jesus with seven horns as a lamb that is slain, it also shows seven horns, which means that even though he was slain, he is complete with power. He has no lack in power. Or another example of something we, we read even in this text, there are the seven spirits of God. Now, are there seven Holy Spirits? No, there you go. We got that one quickly right. There's one Holy Spirit. And so what that might be telling us, again, with the symbol, the symbolic nature of seven, is that the Spirit of God is complete in his role, in his nature, in his work in the world and in God's mission. So we need to be careful with the symbols. We can't just come up with our own idea. We have to look at what maybe it might be meaning based off of other scriptures. So principle five, we doing okay? We're almost halfway through. Good, let's take a deep breath. Like I said, I know this is different from a normal Sunday, so you can take a nap afterward, okay? (laughs) Principle five, the word open is key to the structure of the entire book. Throughout the book, John is led by Jesus deeper and deeper into Revelation. He's he's led deeper and deeper into who Jesus is. And so we see this. There's there's four instances of the word open in this way. The first one happens in chapter 4, verse 1. The second one happens in chapter 11, verse 19. The third one is in chapter 15, verse 5. And the fourth one is chapter 19, verse 11. Now, what is the significance of this open? Why is it sparsed evenly throughout the book? Well, first, in chapter 4, verse 1, what it says is opened is a door into heaven. It says that there is a door opened into heaven. And then later, there's some imagery that goes on, some revelation that goes on. And then later in chapter 11, verse 19, the second instance of open, while in heaven, the entrance to the temple is opened. Okay, so he's getting further in. And then while in the temple, later in the book, in verse 15, 5, the innermost place of the Holy of Holies is opened. And then finally, in chapter 19, verse 11, heaven itself is opened This is meant to describe, I think C.S. Lewis puts it best, further up and further in. The arc of the book, the structure of the book is meant to take us from the outside, through the door into heaven, into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, until all of heaven ultimately opens up. Again, open, apocalypsis. Things are being opened up. John, and us with us as we go through this journey, is led further up, and further in to the revelation of who Jesus is and how his victory is working out in the world. The word open is key. Principle number six. What, we need to always ask this question. What does John see next? The question of this book, as we interpret it, is not what happens next. The question is, What does John see next? Now, this is important 
Because there are so many ways that this book gets misinterpreted, as I've already said. And often the way that it gets misinterpreted is that the events that are described in the book are pieced together on this linear timeline in order for us to have a clue about when the end times are, right? So often the misinterpretation of this book is because we look at it as a a linear timeline. But that's not what John experiences. There are often times within this book where John sees something that happened way long before. (laughs) And so this book, as John gets different revelations, is not him getting a timeline of things, okay? It's him seeing things. It's not a linear timeline. Let me give you an example. In Revelation 12, there's this woman who's described to be in labor, she, she has, uh, she's, she's clothed with the sun and the moon are at her feet. Uh, and as she is in labor, there's this great dragon that shows up, red with seven horns, powerful, or I think it's six, I can't remember. There's a lot of numbers, okay? <laughs> well, I'll remember when we get there. And this dragon is seeking to devour the child. And the child is described as one who will rule the nations. The child gets away. The dragon ends up going elsewhere, and the woman flees into the woods in order to have protection from God. Now, what might that be describing? The Christmas story, yes. Christmas, I mean, Christmas Eve, really. There's this woman who is in labor, and a dragon is seeking to devour this child. That happens in Jesus' life. Herod tries to devour Jesus so that he can remain king. He tries to have all of the children who are two, all the male children who are two and younger killed. But Jesus ends up getting away. Now that happened a long time, about mm, relatively 90 years before John actually writes this book and before anything else that he kind of says throughout the rest of the book. And so what we need to remember is that this is not a linear timeline. The question to ask is not, what happens next, but what does John see next? That's going to protect us as we, as we go throughout this book. Principle seven, the numbers are symbolic, not statistics. The numbers are symbolic, not statistics. Now, this is an important one and also a little bit of a controversial one, but let me say it this way. We can't have it either way. You can't have it both ways. Often when people try to read the book of Revelation, they'll say this number is symbolic, but this number is a statistic. This number is a literal one. So let's add it up real quick so that we can have a better idea of when Jesus is going to come back. You can't have it both ways. Either all of the numbers are symbolic or all of the numbers are statistics. And it is my conviction that there are many numbers in the book that if they were statistics, make absolutely zero sense. (laughs) The numbers are symbolic. So here's an example. There's a a point in the book where it talks about uh, the the 144,000 that are saved in the end. Anybody know that little number? Yep. What is that supposed to mean? There are some who take it to mean literal, you know, like Jehovah's Witnesses, who we would say are not Orthodox Christians anyways, would take it to believe that there's 144,000 who are saved and the rest of us are kind of like, you know, I hope there's more than 144,000 saved. (laughs) Otherwise, we are wasting our time here, guys. 
Let's get out of here. There are so many more than 144,000. What could that mean? Well, John describes this 144,000 as, as a number or a people that could not be counted. What is 144,000? It is 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. <laughs> what that's supposed to bring us to is that there, you know, it, it gets us to the idea that this is a number that can't be counted. Of course, you can count 144,000 people. But as John is standing there, he basically gives uh, an, a guesstimate of 144,000 because it's a symbolic number, a number that cannot be counted. Or here's another one, and this is the controversial one. The 1,000-year reign, also known as the millennium. I believe that this is symbolic of a reign that cannot be measured. Again, it's this number that's like, what? Who could reign for a thousand years? You can't track a thousand years on a calendar. It's meant to symbolize the unending, unmeasurable reign of Jesus Christ. The numbers are symbolic, not statistics. That's an important one. Principle number eight. All right, one more deep breath, okay? Principle number eight, and we get into a little bit more of the discipleship here. We need to know that this book is a call to discipleship. Running throughout the book is the consistent thread to remain, endure as a disciple. Now remember, these early Christians were extremely pressured from the outside world. They had all kinds of things pressing in against them to give up their faith. In fact, John, the reason he's on the island Patmos, which is a prisoner island where you leave people to die, is because of his discipleship to Jesus. You see, there was a, 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 a ruler named Caesar, and at this time it was Domitian, who was extremely brutal. One of, the, one of the most brutal people to ever come against Christianity. And one of the things that, as a, as a Roman citizen, or as anyone really existing in Rome, that you were required to do is to, in the pagan temple, take a little bit of salt or something else that you could throw into a fire. And as you throw it into the fire, you would say, Caesar Kairos. Caesar is Lord. And that was the one thing that you were required to do as a Roman. To live in Rome, all you had to do was say, Caesar Kairos, Caesar is Lord. And Caesar would let you believe anything else you wanted to believe. You could have whatever religion you wanted, you could do whatever you wanted, you could have whatever sort of pagan practices you wanted, as long as you did that one thing. As long as you participated in the imperial worship, you could have whatever else you wanted. He doesn't care. Seems like a pretty good compromise, right? It seems like just saying Caesar at Kairos would be a really easy thing to do for these Christians. Caesar's gonna let you do whatever else you want to do. Just do this one thing. And the Christians refused. John refused. This book is meant to get us to refuse all of the ways that we are pressured to give up on our discipleship. The emphasis in this book is to resist the temptation of infidelity to Jesus. 
We read in, in, in these verses things like tribulation. We read that in these verses that we read today. But we also read things like kingdom and patient endurance. This book is written in order to acknowledge the painful pressure of tribulation and of trial that Christians go through when they are faithful to Jesus. And what the book tells us is meant to show us the kingdom of Jesus Christ and his power, which will give us the patient endurance to make it through. This book is meant to keep you and grow you as a disciple of Jesus. This is in many ways, though a strange one, a discipleship manual for when you are oppressed, for when you have temptation, or when you have trials. Now, what I love about the discipleship call in this book is that it never downplays the pressures. It never downplays the temptations or the suffering that threatens our endurance and discipleship. It actually paints our suffering in the painful colors of reality. We are seen, we see just how vivid and painful our suffering is and these Christians suffering is when we remain faithful to Jesus. It does not downplay or is disconnected from what it's really like to live under pressure. It acknowledges it extremely well. And what I also love is that throughout this book, as you are called to remain faithful to Jesus, Jesus is described consistently as one who knows the hearts and minds of his followers. I love that. That might sound frightening to you, Well, Jesus knows what I think. Jesus knows what I feel. He's gonna see everything that I shouldn't be thinking, shouldn't be feeling. I don't think that's what this book is trying to tell you. I think more so when it says that Jesus understands your heart and your mind. It's trying to show you that Jesus knows all of the things that go through your head when you are under pressure as a Christian. He knows all of the feelings that come into your heart as you are oppressed with Temptation. He knows everything that you are going through in every way in which we are pressed or afraid. But the call remains, stay faithful, endure, overcome. And one of the ways that we overcome, that the book helps us in enduring in our discipleship is principle number nine. And that is that the most frequent command of the book is to look One of the ways the book keeps us faithful to Jesus is by commanding us to look. Now again, the book of Revelation is all about the revelation of who Jesus Christ is. And the reason why the central command of the book is to look is so that we can endure, so that we can see things in Jesus Christ, the truth of who he is, that will actually help us overcome these trials and temptations. And will actually help us in the second most frequent command of the book, which is this, do not be afraid. The two most consistent commands, look, behold, lo, it's like the KJV version, lo. And the second, do not be afraid. If you do the first, you can do the second. If you look at who Jesus Christ is, you can resist fear as you go through trials and temptations in your discipleship. This is the pastoral heart of the book. By seeing Jesus, 
You don't have to be afraid. Principle number 10, and then we'll get into a quick conclusion. There are four key affirmations that bind the book together. Coming, near, must, and I am. The book is bracketed by these four key affirmations, each of them told in chapter one, and then also at the end of the book. So the first affirmation coming, Jesus Christ is coming, not will come, not intends to, but is currently coming toward the world. He is headed towards the world. It's in a perfect present tense. Jesus is directed toward us right now. Jesus is not just chilling, waiting. The book of Revelation shows that he is, he is, he is headed our way. The second affirmation is that he is near. Now, if Jesus is headed towards the world, if Jesus is inclined towards our reality, it means that he is near. He is not far off, but is near to the world and near to us at all times. Third affirmation is the phrase must. Specifically in this little phrase, the things that must take place. This must is often misinterpreted to say, oh, the things that must take place, the events that must take place, that have to happen before Jesus comes. I don't think that's what the emphasis of that word is. I think more so what it is, is that this must, what must take place, is that when Jesus Christ is coming toward the world and is near, there are, there are conflicts that make sense for it to happen as Jesus' kingdom comes up against the kingdom of the world. Of course there's conflict. These things must happen when two kingdoms collide. And then finally, the fourth affirmation, I am. In a book that so often gets misinterpreted to be only about the future, Jesus gives the present tense of the name God has always given himself. I am. God is. So as Jesus is speaking to these seven churches that are in trial and are in pressure, he's saying, I am. Nothing has changed about who I am. Nothing will change about who I am. I will be who I am at all times, which gives these Christians and gives us endurance. And Jesus is. All right. Those are the 10 principles that we have to have in place in order for us to understand this book. And don't worry, you'll hear those things circle, we'll circle back to them and they'll pop up again as we go through this book. But it's important for us to kind of clear some of the brush as we go through such, such a, a complex book. So we'll keep those in mind. But finally, I wanna end our time with a simple why. We might have learned how, how to read the book of Revelation, but why? Josh, why are we going through Revelation? <laughs> I've gotten that question a little bit. Is it because I believe that we are right now in the end times? Well, no, because the way the scripture talks about it is that as soon as Jesus ascended to the heavens, the end times started. <laughs> It's not because of that. We are going through this book because I sense, friends, that we as Christians, in Seattle specifically, but I think 
in many other places, are in deep need of some resilience in our faith. Deep need of adding resilience to our trust in Jesus Christ. We're not going through this book simply because it's complex and kind of fun, though it is. We're not going through this book because I think that we are right now in the end times. We are always in the end times. We are going through this book because I believe that we, myself included, need some resilience in our faith. I think, I think people in Seattle, in general, are incredibly fragile. And which is so strange because our city also has such strong opinions, right? But also we are so fragile. And I don't think Christians are exempt from that fragility. I think that there are many different reasons as to why we feel a little bit more fragile, why we might feel a little bit less resilient, but I won't go into those. We need some resilience in our faith. This book is all about endurance and trial or in pressure, and that is something that we need as Christians here in Seattle. We need to endure in the trial and the pressure. And I'm not just talking about persecution. The American church is not persecuted. I'm talking about your temptation to slowly but surely give your allegiance away from Jesus Christ. That idea, allegiance, comes up in this book a lot. That there is one Lord, but there's also what the book describes as a beast. And it shows that our world is feverishly giving its allegiance to the beast. And there is always the temptation to join in with that as Christians. To walk away. It's too hard, it's too difficult to walk away and to give our allegiance to the beast of comfort, or even what I would say, individualism. Whatever else ends up destroying our faith. We need to have more resilience. When we are tempted or pressured to compromise our faith, what will you do? Will you patiently endure or will you cave? Will you live like the world does, giving allegiance to that beast in a world, again, feverishly worshiping what Revelation calls the beast? Will you endure or will you give in? Friends, we're going through this book because we need to see together the victory of Jesus Christ. Throughout this book, the Spirit of God is going to peel back the curtain in Apocalypsis in order for us to see who Jesus really is, in order to counter the images that our society gives toward us about what the good life is, about what power is, about where things are actually headed. And we'll see together the victory of Jesus Christ. And from there, we can endure. So I hope that you'll be excited for the series. And I hope that you'll lean in. There are many ways in which you might be convicted in this sermon series. Daryl Johnson, the guy who I'm using most for the series, wrote a book called Discipleship on the Edge. And the reason why he says that is because the book of Revelation often portrays Jesus as this two-edged sword. Discipleship to him is a two-edged sword. And it's a, it's a very fine line of allegiance and apostasy. Will you remain allegiance to Jesus Christ? Or will you fall off that edge?
by the Spirit of God, might we see Jesus, look to him, not be afraid, and give our full faith and allegiance to him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this wonderful letter. I thank you that you spoke to John and showed him this beautiful revelation of who Jesus Christ is. And all of what you showed him connected with the real life of those Christians there in those seven churches of Asia. And it does for us as well. As we are confronted, as we are pressured, as we are exhausted, we believe that when we see Jesus in a new light, in a fresh light, that our faith can endure. And so, Father, as we explore this strange, complex, beautiful book, would you compel our faith to remain faithful to you? None of us are exempt from that trial or that pressure that could eventually lead us away from your son. And so, Father, I pray that this series would be a binding effect on our faith to stay near to Jesus, to trust in him, to endure and overcome, because what comes next, what is ahead on the other side of that endurance is beautiful, worth it. So give us faith and give us a resilient, strengthened faith throughout the series. We trust you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us in gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.